you know, I, I joked, I said, you know, that's, that's a hymn for all the Baptists in the crowd. That's a hymn for everybody. It really is because it is such a wonderful encapsulation, such a wonderful presentation of the way that God calls us. I mean, God knows everything about us, and yet He still calls us. He knew everything about who we would be, who we, who we are, and yet He still sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to, to endure the death that we could never endure and live the life that we could never live so that we can have the relationship with Him that we are supposed to have. And what a wonderful grace that is. Today we're going to talk about being known by God and talking, we're going to be talking about how that God who knows us, knows us just as we are. But as we begin our prayer this morning, as we begin our session today, let's be, go to Psalm 8. Um, we're not going to be breaking down Psalm 8 the way we will be Psalm 139, but we are going to pray using the words of Psalm 8 this morning. So let's, let's turn to that. Um, it's page 948 in my Bible if you want to look along, but I don't know what page it is in yours. So, uh, so just turn to the middle of your Bible and it should be somewhere around there. But let's pray together if you'd like to read these words along with me as we pray them. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, when we look at the heavens, at the work of your fingers, and then we remember that you know us, that you care about us, and knowing what you know, that you still sent your Son to die for us, O oh Lord, we are humbled. We are humbled today as we come to your word to learn about the depth to which you know us. O oh Lord, we ask today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be holy and acceptable to you, and that we might know you by understanding how well you know us. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today I want to ask you a question, or something to ponder as we're talking today. Who really knows you best in the world? Who is that person who knows all your best days and all your worst days? All your good stuff and all your dirty little secrets that you wish nobody knew about and that you could even forget. Who knows you best? Is it your best friend? Is it your mom or your dad? Is it your, you know, is it one of your children? Is it your spouse? Who is it? Is it, you know, is it your bathroom mirror? Is it your hairdresser? You know, what's the old joke? Only your hairdresser knows the truth. You know, what's, the, uh, what's that old expression? Who is it that really knows you best and how well do they know you? And, and here's a question. What if that person got offered a million dollars to write a tell-all book about you? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Would you want everybody to know your stuff. Would you want everybody to know everything about you? I can categorically say at this point, no. And I'm somebody who lives in the spotlight. I'm somebody who makes a living 
telling you about all the stuff that is broken in my life. I mean, you know, my poor children, I think they would prefer that I would ch choose some other profession. As preacher's kids, they grew up with the understanding that everything they do is a potential sermon illustration. Even, you'll hear a little bit more about that later, even the story about talking about their resentment of you, me using them in sermons. Last night at our, uh, at our Bible study, when I did this lecture for our Wednesday night group, Morgan was in the crowd. And when I mentioned this, she just rolled her eyes. She said, you're not the only one who has an, uh, whose life is an open book. Thanks. The difference is I'm telling stories about me, but I'm also telling stories about her and Bo and Elle and all these, uh, all my, my beloved family members. So, you know, so, but how would you feel about that? How would you feel about everybody knowing all the details of your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Well, you know, it all depends. You know, it is a great comfort to know that I am fully known by my wife. I mean, she, one of the things that, that really comforts me is that if there's something wrong with me, if something's a little off, she'll recognize that because she knows me so well and she'll tell me about it. You know, or maybe your doctor knows your numbers and things like that. You know, your doctor can pick up on those things. What if you don't have somebody like that in your life who's also kind of, who knows you well enough and is also kind of keeping an eye on you? I tell um, young couples as they're going through premarital counseling, and I, I get into this, I say, you know, you have to understand when, when we say that you are married for in sickness and in health, that means at some point you are going to become that, your, your spouse's first line of medical protection. You know, you, you know, people think about getting married and they think about being, you know, you know, fully <laughs> revealed to one another. And it's like, you know, it's not all, you know, just being, you know, being in that situation where your wife sees you, you know, getting out of the shower, undressed, dressed, all that. That's not just about, you know, that's not just about romance and stuff like that. That's also about, hey, what's that thing on your shoulder? That's never been there before. Or are you okay? You're kind of slurring your words a little bit. You know, if somebody knows you well enough to notice the, the inconsistencies, then that's a really good thing. It's a really comforting thing, but that's really only comforting if you know what? That that person loves you, that that person cares about you. Because what if somebody who doesn't care about you or who wants to use you or manipulate you knows everything about you? You can't go 10, 15 minutes listening to the radio without listening to commercials about identity theft or computer protection and, and hacking or you see uh, iPhone commercials about, about security and, and how, they're secure, how their phone is more secure and that, and that they can keep your personal information from getting out to places like the dark web. It's one thing to be known by the people who love you and that you trust, but it's another thing, it's terrifying to be known, uh, especially known well and in detail, by somebody who doesn't know you or who doesn't care or who would potentially use that information to harm or manipulate you. We're going to be talking more about that in just a few minutes. But, but you know, there are definitely shades to being known, and yet... Being known is one of the most important parts of faith. John Calvin, the great uh, reformer of the 16th century, said this in the beginning of his uh, in the in the beginning of his great book, the um, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Excuse me. How did I get past this? I missed this. Um, there it is. He said, "All the wisdom that we possess." consists of two things, knowledge of God and of ourselves. 
And what he meant by that was, we do not really have a fully formed faith or even wisdom about the world unless we know these two things. We need to know who God is, and we need to know who we are. We need to know who God is, what He does, what He has done, what He is doing, what He will do. But we also need to know who we are in relationship to Him. We need to know, not just I don't mean just in relationship in the sense of do we love Him, does He love us, but who am I compared to Him? Who am I compared to, say for example, the weather or gravity? I need to know how I respond to that greatest force in the universe, God. I need to know how He acts on me and I act on Him. But there's this relationship and we need to know both God and ourselves. And today, as we study the Psalms, specifically Psalm 139, we are going to be addressing this issue of, of being known by God. Now, last week, if you remember, we learned from David in Psalm, uh, in Psalm 19 that there are essentially two ways that we know God. The first way that we know God is through what we call general or natural revelation. That is, through the things that God has made. Remember that David said, that said, Oh Lord, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament declares your works. It shows forth your praise. What he's saying is that even in the stars, which he saw all the time as a shepherd boy, even the stars betray the creativity, the ingenuity, the genius, the majesty of God. It's like, again, that, that pinch pot we talked about that has the, the fingerprints of the maker all over it. The understanding of, of the first part of Psalm 19 is that we can know God through the things we, that He has made. And it's just like looking at a picture of someone. You can, you can look at somebody or you can look at a picture of them and you can learn certain things about them. First of all, the thing you look at that you learn from looking at a picture of someone or looking at them directly is you learn that they exist. That, they, you know, that you know, presume, presumably, unless it's been photoshopped or something like that, that person really exists. But there's another way that we know God as well, and that's what we call special revelation. And that is what God provides for us specifically in the form of direct communication, specifically through His Word. So special revelation comes to us primarily through His Word. Now what does that mean? It means that God has also revealed Himself by telling us about Himself. I can look at a picture of you or I can look at you and I can learn certain things. But if you hand me your resume or you write a letter to me, or you write your own autobiography, I'm going to learn a lot more because you have revealed specific details about who you are. And so you get a different level of knowledge and understanding that might even correct your impressions, you know, the impressions you get just from looking. General revelation in and of itself is, is not sufficient to know everything we need to know for salvation. But God's special revelation then corrects or, or focuses our attention on the things that we must know. So we know through His Word those things that we must know about Him. The most sophisticated form of special revel revelation was in the Incarnation when the Word was not just written, but when the Word became flesh. So if you carry the analogy a little farther, general revelation is me just looking at a picture of you and, and sort of uh, figuring out what I can figure out from the picture. Um, the written word of God is like him handing us a letter or an autobiography or a written story or a resume where he gives us the details. But the incarnation, when the word became flesh in Jesus Christ, that's like sitting down and having a conversation with somebody, a very thorough conversation and really getting to know them. And so David in Psalm 19 that we studied last week shows us the different ways that we can know 
God, that God is not unknowable. As a matter of fact, God has gone to great lengths to be known. And this week, we're turning to the idea of God knowing us and knowing ourselves by understanding how God knows us. And so we turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 um, is a psalm that, we, uh, that scholars assume is a mature psalm of David. That is to say that um, it comes later in his life when his, his thinking is obviously maturing. It's becoming more sophisticated. He's got more time to reflect. He's probably not on the run at this point, hiding in caves from Saul or from Absalom or people like that. But he's actually sitting down at his desk, uh, taking the opportunity to write out what he understands to be true about God. Um, but this is a psalm uh, that doesn't necessarily go with any single particular context. So as we read this psalm, we understand that this is his reflection on how we are known by God. Um, on this psalm, John Calvin wrote this. He said, in this psalm, David, that he may dismiss the deceptive coverings under which most men take refuge and divest himself of hypocrisy, insists at large upon the truth that nothing can elude the divine observation. In other words, God sees everything. A truth which he illustrates from the original formation of man, since he who fashioned us in our mother's womb and imparted to every member its particular office and function cannot possibly be ignorant of our actions. Quickened by this meditation to a due reverential fear of God, he declares himself to have no sympathy with the ungodly and profane and beseeches God in the confidence of conscious integrity not to forsake him in this life. In other words, this story is, or this psalm is about being known by God and how God knows us. It's about understanding ourselves better by understanding what God and how, how God knows us and what God knows about us. And so as we think about this, let's, let's consider, you know, how does God see us? Or how well does God know us? Well, just to apply this to David's life in particular, if we think about, um, if we think about uh, David's calling, his anointing, the thing that God said to Samuel is that uh, when David was, when Samuel was called to, uh, to anoint the new king of Israel, he went through all of David's brothers and said, man, all these guys look good. What's the problem? And the Lord said this, the Lord sees not as a man sees or look on, uh, because man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In other words, we make our assessments, we make our judgments about people just by what we see on the surface. But God looks at a much deeper level. God knows us on a much deeper, more profound level of knowledge. And David is then going to unpack that in Psalm 139. So how does God know us? Let's look at what Psalm 139 says. First of all is God's omniscience. God's omniscience. That is that God is all-knowing. If you look at the first section of this psalm, God knows all about us. He is the one who knows us more thoroughly than we know ourselves. First of all, God knows what we do. The first line of the, uh, line of the psalm, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, listen, listen to this. I love it. God, you have searched me and known me. As David enters into this psalm about how God knows us, he's not approaching it from a doctrinal standpoint, although there is 
good doctrine here. He's not approaching it from a philosophical or an abstract standpoint. He's approaching it how? From a personal standpoint. You know me. You don't know just people. You know me. You know what I've done. You know what I think. You know what I say. But, but you have a personal knowledge of who I am and what I do. He says, you know when I, when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You search out my path and my lying down. God, he's saying, God, you know everything we do. Now think about David sitting down to write those words. God, you know everything I do, everything I will do. You know everything I have done. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Think about David's life. What did God know about David? Well, he knew all the good stuff. He knew about his faith and his faithfulness in fighting the giant Goliath. He knew David's, uh, David's faithfulness in defending his people in multiple wars. He knew about David's honor and loyalty and the mercy that he showed Saul in the cave when he could have killed him. He knew his respect for Jonathan and he knew his mercy to his crippled son Mephibosheth. He knew that David had united the people in one political capital, uniting the, uniting the nation, and he'd also brought them together spiritually by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He wanted to build the temple, which is a wonderful testament to his piety, but he wasn't allowed to do it. But when he wasn't allowed to do it, he still bought the land upon which the temple would be built. And for that, God rewarded him with the promise of the covenant of an eternal dynasty. We see the good in David's life when we read the Psalms, these words that God put into him to share with us. And I think we see him at the pinnacle. We see David at his best when we see him standing on the threshing floor telling God, take me instead of the city of Jerusalem. Take my life in place of theirs where we really see the foreshadowing of great David's greater son, Jesus the Christ, offering himself a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So God knew all of those great things about David, but he also knew the, the bad stuff too, didn't he? He knew about David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He knew that David had had Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, killed to cover up the affair. He knew, God knew about David's neglect with his own children when Amnon raped his sister Tamar and then Absalom killed uh, killed Amnon in revenge and the chaos that ensued, all because David did not get directly involved and said, threw up his hands and said, well, what can I do? He knew that, that David had neglected his family. He knew about David's census. He knew about the times when David had defied or at least had sidestepped or tried to sidestep God's commands. But he also knew just about kind of the ugliness, the stuff that the Bible doesn't necessarily present as good or evil or, or bad, but the stuff that's just kind of cringeworthy. We think about David's political ruthlessness, his willingness to allow Joab to, to kill people or become his enforcer for the sake of his political convenience or gain, and then allow him to take the blame for it. Or those times when he was ungrateful to the thousands and thousands of soldiers who died to save his throne and his crown and even his life. We think about those other times when he was just less 
than we would hope this man of God would be. We see as we look back over David's life that he was, he was fatally flawed as well as being favored and faithful. But God knows all of that. And David knows that God knows all of that, and he says, you've still called me anyway. That's amazing to me. It's not just that God knows what we do. God knows what we think. Verse 2 says, you discern my thoughts from afar. You know what I am thinking all the time. There's an interesting uh, new television show coming on about this young woman who works in an office and she has some kind of brain injury or accident and it activates something in her mind so that she can read the, pe- the minds of the people around her. Have y'all seen the commercials for this? I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's, it looks like it's going to be pretty cute. What's it? Yeah, Zoe's Playlist. That's the name, that's the name of this new show. And the, but the, whole, the, the gimmick, though, is that it's not just that she hears the thoughts of people around her. It's specifically attuned to she hears what they're thinking. So I hear what Dan's thinking, but I don't hear it as words. I hear it as a song. So in other words, Dan, Dan's got a song playing about me in his head. I don't want to know what that is. But the idea is that that she's just like a radio picking up these signals from people all the time, the stuff that they're thinking about her. Wouldn't that be a terrible burden? Oh, I would hate that. But it says that God, you you know, God knows our thoughts. We don't have to tell God what we're thinking. I mean, you can say in your mind, I hope God already, I hope that God never finds out I thought that. Well, guess what? He already knows. He knows our thoughts from afar. But then... I love this. Look at verse 3b. And, are, and you're also acquainted with all my ways. What does that mean? It means it's not just that God knows our thoughts, our conscious thoughts. He also knows our habits. He knows our patterns. He understands the way we think and live and move. And I think this is a, a fascinating idea. Um, it, it got me thinking about the whole David and Bathsheba affair. Why did God send Nathan to confront David about his affair with Bathsheba? And why did Nathan, instead of just accusing the king directly of of an affair, why did he go through this entire dramatic story of the man and the sheep? You may remember the story that David, after the affair with Bathsheba, and after having uh, Uriah the Hittite killed to cover it up, Nathan came to him and said, Oh, my king, there's a rich man who had all these sheep and he was very wealthy, and his neighbor only had one little sheep, and, and that sheep was so precious to him, and it was like a member of his family. He treated it like a daughter, and it slept in his bed with him. And Oh, he and his children loved that sheep so much, but the rich man had a visitor one day, and rather than take one of his own sheep and slaughter it and kill it to feed his visitor, he went and he got the, one, the poor man's one little sheep that was a member of his family, and he came and he took it and he slaughtered it and he fed it to his guest. He said, he said my king, what should we do? And what did King, what did king David say? Oh, Man, we can't let that stand. That is unjust. He will pay him back everything. He should pay for this. He's a sinner. And then what does Nathan say? You are the man. Now, why did God go through that dramatic, that elaborate setup? Because he knew David. And he knew that David would never allow the thing that he had done. And so he traps David in his own conscience. I mean, it's one thing if you get caught doing something... And the thing you're really upset about is the fact that you got caught. 
This cuts straight to the, day, to the heart of who David is. And, and God, I think, went through that route. I think he, he goes through that entire drama because he wants David to be caught in his own snare, hoisted on his own petard. He wants him to understand at the deepest level of who he is, why he has broken covenant, why he has broken God's law. God knows us so well that when He challenges us, when He punishes us, when He corrects us, when He chastens us, when He teaches us, He knows exactly how to do it. God knows your best learning style because He knows everything about us. He knows our ways. It's not just that, though. God also knows everything we say. Dang it, this keeps getting worse. Every time we say something we shouldn't say. You know, it's, have you ever heard the old expression, children never misquote you. They repeat word for word what you shouldn't have said. <laughs> when was the day you realized that your kids have better hearing than you thought they did? I mean, I, I mean we all do it. We're all sitting up in the front seat of the car having that conversation we think is just between the two of us, just between you know, husband and wife. And all of a sudden, your kid asks you a really embarrassing question. And you're like, oh, you weren't supposed to hear that. That's what God is all the time. He hears everything we say. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. But here's another interesting element to, to that too. Verse 5 says, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Now take those two things together. He's still talking about speech here. It's not just that God knows what we're going to say and knows what we have said, like somebody who overhears what we say. But in David's case especially, he's saying, I know what you're going to say because I'm going to put the words there. I'm hemming you in. Remember that when David was called the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and became the inspiration, became that constant companion talking to David that eventually began to proliferate the Psalms. Those words started to just fill those prayers, fill those devotions, fill those statements. And so God's saying, you know, David, I not only know what you say, I know what you say because I put those words in your mouth. How do we know that? Listen to what Psalm said, uh, what Psalm, uh, David said in Psalm 40. You have put a new song in my mouth. God's not just passively receiving the things that David's saying. He's not just passively overhearing them. He's also putting words by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit into David. And so, in a sense, he knows what he's going to say because he puts those words in him. So he overhears us the things we choose to say, and he also puts in us, especially in his biblical writers, in this case David, the words that he wants him to say. That's how thorough God's knowledge is of everything that we say. He put a new song in my mouth. So God knows what we do. He knows what we think. He knows what we say. Okay, he knows all that stuff about us. And you know what? He also knows everywhere we are because He is everywhere with us. God is also omnipresent. Excuse me, let me move forward here. God is also omnipresent. That means He is everywhere. God is always with us. You know, what does that mean that God is always with us? It means that 
He is, he is with us at every step. There's not a place where we can go to hide from Him. Listen to verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That is to say, if I ascend into eternity to live with you forever, you're there. If I go to the place of the dead, you're there. There's no place I can escape you. There's no getting away from God's knowledge of me. He's in heaven. He's in the place of the dead. I love the next line that it says, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, then, then you are there. What is the wings of the morning? That's a, that's a metaphor for the rising of the sun. Where does that take place? Where does the sun rise from? The east. Think about living in Israel. If you're, going to the, if you're going to the ocean, if you're going to the sea, where are you going? To the west. Israel only has a west coast, no east coast. And so, in, that, in their parlance, and their understanding, the metaphor is, from the rising of the east to the ocean is what? From the east to the west. It doesn't matter where I go, from the east to the west. You are there. I can't get away from you. You know, maybe we have an impulse to flee from God. And you know, I think that's true. Our impulse to flee from God is as old as the fall. Remember that when Adam and Eve fell, what was the first thing they did? They hid from God. They tried to, they tried to just avoid Him at first. And then they, they dressed themselves up in fig leaves to try and cover themselves, a type of hiding. You know, when we know we've done something wrong, our impulse is to hide. But we can't get away from God. Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You can't even hide from God, not even in the darkness. You remember the old Western movies where they would show the big horse chase scene, and it was supposed to be at night, but you could tell they obviously filmed it during the day. I mean, it's, that's the way it is with God. It's like He sees everything. There's no darkness that's too dark for Him to see into and know what we're doing. He always knows, no matter how hard we try to hide it. Here comes an illustration about one of my kids. You can apologize with me later. Um, I remember once when I was in, uh, when, when we were living in Augusta, Georgia, and I was with my beautiful five-year-old daughter, and we walked into a Christian bookstore, family, I think family Christian bookstores or Lifeway or something like that, and I just moved to town. Actually, she was probably about two or three. I just moved to town. And I was just getting acquainted with the Christian bookstores in town, and they said, oh, well, you're a local pastor. Yes, I am. Oh, well, here's a pastor's discount card. You get this. You can use this at the Christian bookstore. I said, oh, thank you so much. I took it, and I slipped it in my wallet, and we began to walk out. And as we're leaving, I see that Ellie is kind of walking like this. <laughs> She's got something behind her back. I said, Ellie, what have you got? She says, nothing. I said, Ellie, what have you got? And She's turning, and I don't have anything. What have you got? Finally, she, shamefully, she lowers her head and she pulls out this little beaded bracelet that had, was just right at her level and she picked up and she thought it was pretty and she decided to take it and I was mortified. The, the, the clerk over here was just dying laughing. I was like, that is not what the pastor's discount means. Um, <laughs> you know, but she thought she could hide it from me. And, and, and yet, we all, and yet we, God knows everything we do. There's no place that we can hide from Him. So how does that make us feel? We, you know, we, he knows our words. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything we do. We can't hide from Him. That gets pretty scary, doesn't it? 
What does it mean, you know, when somebody knows us that thoroughly? Is that a comfortable thing or is that a scary thing? Well, again, it depends on the context. It depends on if the person that knows everything about you loves you or if that person is going to use that to manipulate you. Um, lots of you know that, that Elle now has, is a wonderful, wonderful young woman and she's now a theater production major up at the University of Oklahoma. Um, and this past fall, she was invited, and I, I'm tremendously proud of this, she was invited to do the scenery, the set production for a play, to, to direct the set production for this play. And the play was a, an updated version of the old German play, The Trial, by Hans Kafka, Franz Kafka, Franz Kafka, you all may remember that. It's a, it's a story about the oppression of totalitarian regimes, specifically at that time, the, the communists of Russia. So think like 1984, that type of oppressive regime. And it was, but the, the original version was all about this man who is on trial by this oppressive state who doesn't ever have to produce any evidence, who just, who just accuses him and who, who really, um, really dominates his life in ways that he can't understand. Well, they updated the play for the 2000s, and instead of making it a play about the oppression of a totalitarian government, they made it about the oppression of a new sociological concept that is getting some traction in academia right now called surveillance capitalism. Have you heard that word? It's a, it's a relatively new term. Surveillance capitalism is the market economy based on people having your information. So, you've all heard about data mining. Data mining is when companies like Google or Facebook or whatever watch what you do online when you're using Facebook or your computer. They, like to, they look at what you're doing on the internet and they, they look at the sites that you, that you visit and they look at the things you buy and they look at the things that you scroll over and they take all that information, they build algorithms or patterns and then they use those to, use those to send specific content to your computer. So, if you buy a lot of stuff at Orvis, it will throw Orvis ads up on your page, even if you're not looking at them. Or if you are really into, um, you're really into antiques, it will start throwing all kinds of information about antique information about antiques up on your screen. Or if you have a particular political point of view, it will throw ads up there or uh, information to you about particular um, writers or speakers or events either to convince you to continue that way or to convince you to go another way. The point is what they do is they gather your information, they look at your patterns, they establish your habits, and then they use that manipulation to manipulate your buying habits. It's called surveillance capitalism. And the idea is the more information they have about you, the more they can manipulate you with it. And, you know, it, and, you know, I remember reading the book uh, 1984 when I was in high school. I know that, you know, many of you all are familiar with that story, the idea of a totalitarian regime where they, where in this country, in the country of Oceania, every room has a, has a video screen that not only, that, that not only projects, you know, the news of the day, but also watches you. So it's two-way. It's not a mirror, it's a window. So you watch your leaders on the screen, but they are also watching you. 
Now, that was a really terrifying out there concept for a long time until what? Until people started putting Alexa in their home. You know that little device that said, Alexa, what's the weather? Alexa, play my favorite song. Alexa, dim the lights. Alexa, are you listening? No. You know? <laughs> I mean, constantly listening. I remember, you know, I remember once when Morgan and I were on a long road trip and we had just been talking about, uh, talking about a side trip that we might take to Civil War battlefields along the way. And Morgan pulls up her phone and turns on her web browser. And what do you know? All kinds of ads about Civil War battlefields. She hadn't been looking that up before. The phone was listening. Alexa's listening. The device is listening. We are being listened to constantly. Now, David is saying similar things about God, that God knows everything about us. The question is this. Does Alexa, does Amazon, does Google love us, or are they just trying to manipulate us? What about God? Is, does God love us? Does he care? Is he just trying to manipulate us? Is being, you know, being known can be a very scary thing. Is being known comforting, or is it scary? Well, for us, in this passage, it turns on verse 10. Because in verse 10, we remember that the one who is listening to us, the one who knows us best, is the one who loves us the most. Look at verse 10. Um, I'll come back to this in a second. Look at verse 10. Even there, meaning in Sheol, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. At this point, David takes a turn where he, he declares that it would be terrifying to be known this well if it was not God who knows us. If it was not God who is long-suffering and God who is all-powerful who knows us. Because what's he saying? Even there, even in death, even in the place of death, in Sheol, you are there and your right hand holds me, your hand leads me. And so what he is saying is that even death is not beyond the reach of God's love. Even if we are in those places where we shouldn't be, God is still with us. Even if we are in those situations where we shouldn't be, God is still with us. Thank goodness He knew. You know, thank goodness He knows where we are. What if we were out on our own in those places of brokenness and in those places of rebellion and in those places of, of danger? But he says, even there in the place of death, God is with us. And I think this is really a significant turn in the, uh, in the, in the psalm for us. And why is he there? Because he is, uh, he is not only is he omnipresent, excuse me, I'm going the wrong way. He's not, only on, um, he's not only loving, he's also omnipotent. It's not just that God's love is long-suffering. It's that he also has the power to be where we need him to be. So, why does he love us? Well, David gets into this as well. He loves us because he is our creator. He loves us because he's the one who made us. He's both our savior and our creator. And that's what the following verses talk about, 13 to 24. God is the one who created us. And that's why he knows us so well. 
Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You see, God not only sees the invisible things in us, and He not only penetrates the inaccessible things in us, but He is at work in those places, and He is the author of every detail of my being. In other words, God knows us better than anybody else because God made us. Now this is interesting. David introduces not only I mean, he introduces a whole new dimension here. Not only is God where we are in terms of location, He's also where we are in terms of time. He's saying way back then, you know, when you were born, before you were born, when you were being assembled, God was there. It's not just that God's with you now. It's that He has always been with you. He knows you more thoroughly than anyone. And so he says that this is not even a barrier to God's knowledge. Time is not a barrier. There's not a time before God knew you. He's always known you. And on top of that, it's not just that He's always known you in the sense that He's observed you, or He's watched you, or He's, he's predicted what you've done. It is that He knows you because He made you. And this is critical. God is not just a character in our story. And for that matter, we are not just characters in His story. Rather, God is the author of the book. He is sovereign over it all. He's not just one of the players in this story. He's the one who is writing the story. And what that means is that He is the creator of the characters, the setting, the plot, the circumstances, everything. God is the author of it all. 139.16 says, He schedules each day of our lives before we are born. He says He records every day in his book. He says in verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. You were written, uh, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knew us before we were born. As a matter of fact, we didn't exist until God thought of us. Until God knew us. Ephesians 1, 3-6 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His gr glorious grace with which He was, has blessed us in the Beloved. God knows us thoroughly because God made us. He made us. And so He knows us better than anyone. So God knows us, but what does He think of us? Oh, that's a little trickier. Well, consider this. He says that God has made us and we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now what does that mean? Well, first of all, this, this passage, this psalm is a reproach to anybody who would claim evolution as an accidental or undirected purpose. 
In other words, you are no accident. Everything about you is under the tender care, guidance, and direction of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not an accident. This is an affirmation of human worth. And that's important because self-reflection could get really scary. It can take us to a really dark place if we don't understand that the God who knows us best is also the God who loves us the most. Remember, David is saying, he thinks so many good things about you. He, He loves you so much in ways that cannot be counted. You know, he may not be happy with everything we do, but he loves us for who we are. He hates our sin. And yes, he really hates our sin, so much so that he was willing to allow his son to die for it. He hates our sin, but he loves his children. One of my professors, Balmer Kelly, once said that everything that God says about his son Jesus, he says about his children who are in Christ. So when God says that you are my beloved child and with you I am well pleased, if you are in Christ, then God also says of you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, and with you I am well pleased. You are of eternal worth. Because not only has God made you, but God has bought you with the blood of His Son. He has claimed you as His child through Jesus Christ. Now here's an interesting twist on some of this language. He says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You've heard me say so many times that the best way to understand those words, fear of the Lord, or when we're told to fear the Lord, what that means is not that we are to live in terror of Him, although... You know, I certainly lived in terror of my father when I knew I had violated his rules. Um, not terror, but I, I, knew, I knew where things stood, but I respected him. But we understand that fear of the Lord means that we are to take God seriously. Well, here's something that's very interesting about this passage. This is the only time where, where fear is ever, fearing humanity is ever used in this way. Because we're always told to fear the Lord. But here it says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. What does that mean? It means that God takes our creation seriously. You're not a joke. You're not a a lark. You're not a fluke. You're not just a hobby thing that he's going to throw away at some point. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God takes seriously your creation. He has made you in his own image, and he has claimed you through the death and life of his son. That's what he did. He created us. The imago Dei in the image of God. And then he reclaimed us through his son, through his incarnation. When Jesus Christ became became a man, when he took on flesh, God was not just redeeming you and I as individuals. He was redeeming humanity, saying, as again in Genesis, it is good. That's why David says in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. He's saying, I know that you know me better than anybody. And I love the fact that you still love me, that you think positively about me. And boy, could David say that. Because here's a guy who knows that God knows everything about him. And yet he still thinks well on David, well enough to say, this is a man after my own heart. 
So David, is, he wants us to understand that, yes, it can be absolutely terrifying to be fully known by a holy God. But it can also be of great comfort. Now, at this point, there is an awkward piece in verse 19. Um, in verse 19, he says, O oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. And he says, O oh men of blood, depart from me. Now, what is it? You know, it, it takes a weird turn in this place. Does it seem all of a sudden that David has become vindictive? Well, if you take these two verses together, O oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked, O oh men of blood, depart from me. He's really talking about not so much vengeance, but about his zeal for God. Because first he says, you know, O oh God, you know, if you, would, if you would destroy the wicked, what is he saying? He's saying not, God, take vengeance for me. What he's saying is, God, protect your holy name. Protect your righteousness. Protect your character. Don't put up with holiness, uh, with unholiness. Don't put up with unrighteousness. Don't put up with vanity. Don't put up with sin. Lord, protect your name. And for that matter, protect my name. O men of blood, depart from me. He says, you know, pr you know, protect me from unrighteousness, from unholiness. Keep those people away from me because I don't need them because I'm susceptible to their influence. But then he says this, but search me, O God, and know my heart. You see, there's no hypocrisy in David. He's saying, he's saying God, protect your holy name. Protect it from other people. Protect it from the people who would slander you, who would lie about you, who would misrepresent you. Protect me from those people who would slander me, who would tempt me, who would lead me in the wrong path. And Lord, protect yourself from me. Not that God needs protection from us, but search me. Dig into those hard-to-get-to, weird, scary parts of my soul where I'm still in rebellion to you. Search me, O oh God. Examine me. Test me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. He says, God, if you know me so well, go to those deepest parts of my soul that I can't get to and clean them out too. You know, uh, comedian Chris Rock, has an interesting bit that he does about dating. And, you know, Valentine's coming up. You may, you know, you know as you're talk, people are talking about that, you may want to think about this. Chris Rock says that when you go on a first date, you don't actually go on that date. You send your representative. <laughs> In other words, you, you don't actually go. You don't go as yourself. You send the person you wish you were. Isn't that true when we pray? When we pray, even when we confess our sins, don't we send a representative, someone who's going to maybe not go all the way, maybe not get real deep, maybe put it in the best light possible. God, forgive me for this, but help me to understand why I was led and distracted by this person. What David is saying is that, God, you know me so well, I need you to get past that representative, to get past that superficial prayer. I need you to get past all of that. I need you to go into those places that I can't see so that you can undo the things that I just wouldn't undo. Maybe even the things I don't think about anymore. 
There's a great quote by the, by the wonderful old Baptist pastor, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, an Englishman who was just an extraordinary man called the Prince of Preachers. He writes this. He writes, self-examination is not the simple thing which at first sight it might appear. No Christian who has ever really practiced it has found it easy. Is there any exercise, exercise of the soul which any one of us has found so unsatisfactory, so almost impossible as self-examination? The fact is that the heart is so exceedingly complicated and intricate, and it is so very near the eye which has to investigate it, and both it and the eye are so restless and so shifting that its deep anatomy, anatomy baffles our research. Just a few things here and there, broad and open and floating up on the surface, I may discover. But there are chambers receding within chambers in that deepest of all deep things, a sinner's heart, which no mirror or, or human investigation ever will reach. It is the prerogative of God alone to search the human heart. Our prayers of confession should all include this line. Lord, search me and know me. I'm going to lay out to you the things that I can bear to lay out to you, even if they're ugly, even if they sound bad to our ears, but there's still confession in there. And what we're asking God to do is say, God, pray those things, search out those things, root out those things that I can't even bear to confess to myself, let alone confess to you. It seems like a scary proposition except for the fact that God already knows, it all, knows about all of it. You know, I think that I'm opening the hidden vault to God only to discover that there's a back door. You may remember the old Andy Griffith episode where there was, you know, the, there was you know, this, bank, this gang of bank robbers had come to town and they were, they were there to rob, rob Mayberry's bank and, and they had this safe cracker with them and they had, you know, this guy from, from New York and they had this expert team of burglars and, and they got in, they opened the... They opened the vault, and there was Andy sitting there in a rocking chair. And they said, what are you doing? How did you get in there? He says, oh, well, we put a back door in this thing years ago because we forgot the combination. <laughs> God has that back door to our hearts already. He already knows what's there. So pray, search me and know me. Know me better than Google. Know me better than my wife. Know me better than everybody else. And take that and cleanse, cleanse me from all of that. Being fully known is not so scary if we understand that we're also fully loved. You may not know God, but I promise you that God already knows you. And one day, as Paul says, um, one day, as Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will come to see him face to face. Now in part, I, now, now we know him in part, but then I shall know him fully, even as I have been fully known. One day we will get to know God so much more deeply. We'll see Him face to face when it won't, when it won't be just a reliance on a picture of Him through the, through the work of His hands. And it won't just be on His rest, written testimony, but we will get to see Him face to face and converse, uh, converse with Him one-on-one -on -one, the way we always wanted to do. But th till then we remember that He knows us better than all. I know I skipped over some things, and I encourage you to... To, to look at that verse from Jeremiah because one of the things he says is not just search me but put me on the right path but know that God loves you and he, even, though he knows, even though he knows us thoroughly he loves us more than anyone else let's pray Lord we thank you that
being known fully is not as scary if we understand that we are also fully loved. And so we ask you, O God, today to release ourselves to you. We ask you to help us, O Lord, to open our hearts and to ask you to, to search our hearts that there may be no wicked way in us and that we might follow your way to everlasting life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.